All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry. I was a CW-2 helicopter-type pilot in Vietnam in 1969, and I want to welcome you to Veterans Radio today. It's a very important day. 77 years ago today, uh, D-Day, the largest amphibious invasion in the history of mankind, um, 12 allied countries invaded Normandy, the shores of France, and uh, started at the beginning of the end of World War II in Europe. So we want to welcome you today, and we're going to be talking a lot about D-Day. I've got two great guests lined up for you. I've got John Long, and John is the director of the National D-Day Memorial, and he is going to be here to talk about that organization and a little bit of history of of uh, D-Day, of course. And also I've got Myra Miller, and Myra Miller is a researcher uh, with uh, Footsteps Researchers, and she is uh, follows really uh, very closely the 83rd Infantry Division, uh, so she's got some stories about that. Her father was in the 83rd Infantry Division. And we've got a little segment toward the end of the program today about uh, NVBDC. And let me mention that right away. Before we get into our interview with John, uh, let me make sure I don't forget to thank our very loyal sponsors. We couldn't do this program without them and without you, of course, too. So number one would be Legal Help for Veterans. Uh, they specialize in veteran disability claims. Call Legal Help for Veterans at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's largest third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. If you have a veteran-owned business and you want to do business with the government or with some corporations, you need to become certified. So for more information, go to their website. That's nvbdc.org. The Eisenhower Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Jacksonville, Florida, and actually today I saw out in Manchester, Michigan. Uh, they uh, provide in-house care for uh, veterans and first responder and athletes who have suffered uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, suffer from post-traumatic stress, any type of, of uh, head injury is what they specialize in. So for more information, you can go to their website. That's Eisenhower.com. Uh, the Lieutenant Colonel Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center right here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is one of our sponsors, as is U.S. Wings, the manufacturers of the finest leather flight jackets in the world. Uh, for more information, you can go to uswings.com or give them a call at 800-650-0659. A quick reminder to those listeners out there, U.S. Wings has been giving away a flight jacket for the last couple of months, and they will be for the remainder of this year. But you've got to register to win. So you need to go to veteransradio.net, click on the flight jacket. It's a um, Top Gun Maverick-type flight jacket with all the insignias that go along with the Top Gun 2 movie. And that's your opportunity to win. We've had two winners so far. And if you go to our website, you'll find out all about those winners. And I encourage you to do that. Um, also, I want to make sure that we don't forget to thank our local uh, veteran service organizations, that the Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310, the American Legion Post 46, and the VFW Post 423, all here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you would like to become a sponsor of Veterans Radio, you can just go to veteransradio.net slash our sponsors. That's out of the way. 
Ta-da. All right. So joining me on the line right now, I told you we wanted to get right into this interview, is uh, John Long. And John is the uh, Director of Education at the National D-Day Memorial in Bedford, Virginia. Uh, John, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank, thank you, Dale. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. I'm sure that today is a busy day. It was very busy this morning. It's kind of slowed down in the afternoon, uh, but it's also been a great day, great weekend, as a matter of fact. We've had hundreds of visitors coming by to pay tribute to the uh, fallen of D-Day and to the World War II veterans who are still with us. Well, I, I just think it's it's great what your organization uh, is doing. It's a, it's, it is a relatively new organization, isn't it? Today is actually our 20th anniversary. Uh, the memorial was dedicated on June 6, 2001 by President Bush, uh, who came in. And at that uh, dedication ceremony, we had probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,200 World War II veterans. And as a, uh, you know, just evidence of how much things have changed and how quickly we are losing these heroes, today at our commemoration, we had three World War II veterans with us. Uh, and that's, you know, of course, we're in, still in the COVID world, uh, and many are reluctant to travel. But, uh, you know, th- this is the greatest generation, and we are rapidly telling them goodbye. Uh, you know, we understand that very, very much here at Veterans Radio. We've been uh, trying to get as many World War II veterans on as we can. Um, Excellent. Uh, during, uh, during COVID, it's, of course, it's difficult, but we're, you know, we're working on it. We've still got a couple more that are in this, in our local area. So we're going to be, uh, reaching out to them in the near future. Uh, the National, uh, D-Day Memorial is in Bedford, Virginia. Why was it in Bedford, Virginia? People ask that often. Why is the National Memorial for a great international event in little tiny Bedford? And the answer is very simple and yet very profound. Bedford had the highest per capita losses of any community on D-Day itself. 20 men from Bedford, 19 of those 20 from a single company, were killed on the on Omaha Beach probably within the first hour of the invasion. And uh, for a tiny community uh, in 1944, it was just a devastating blow. Uh, you know, no, no other community, to our knowledge, uh, can claim such, a, such per capita losses. Well, how how big was was Bedford back in 1944? Uh, the town of Bedford was about 4,000 people. The county of Bedford, uh, which is of course the larger agricultural region around, was about 25, 30,000. Um, and many of these men, you know, some lived in the town, some on farms out in the countryside. Uh, but uh, you know, pretty much anyone knew. These guys knew their families, went to school with them, went to church with them, uh, and Bedford, uh, say Bedford has never forgotten. So when the opportunity to place a national memorial somewhere in the U.S. came up, Bedford was very quick to uh, approach the organizing committee and uh, let them know that, that they would be interested, and uh, it, it's been the right choice. Uh, as, as President Bush said 20 years ago today, uh, you know, it's it's significant that we put this in a small hometown, the type of community that would have been so precious to all of the D-Day soldiers. And, uh, you know, a, another memorial in Washington, D.C. just would have been swallowed up as another memorial. So, uh, yeah, we, we are in the right place, and everyone who visits agrees. 
speaking of the right place, whereabouts is Bedford, Virginia? I know it's at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains, but whereabouts? It is. It is right in between Roanoke and Lynchburg. Um, and oh, probably three and a half hours south of Washington, D.C. It's a little bit off the beaten path. It's not directly on an interstate highway, uh, but it is not so far off the beaten path that uh, people coming through this part of Virginia can't stop. And we have, uh, you know, visitors, in fact, just the other day, uh, not long after we opened, we counted cars from nine different states parked around the, uh, the memorial grounds. Well, I, I, I just think it's a, it's a great place. I wanted to talk about your, well, obviously I want to talk about D-Day a little bit, but I want to talk about your website and what your job is there, John. Uh, we are talking to John Long, who happens to be the director of education at the National D-Day Memorial. Um, there's so much information on your site, John. I, I, I don't even know where to begin. Oh, thank you. And my, my job as director of education, I, I joke a lot that what it entails is staring at a computer screen most of the day. Uh, but in reality, our education department, uh, you know, welcomes school groups. Um, you know, do, we do a lot of virtual programming, especially in the last year. Uh, and uh, I am also um, administrator of our collection because we have developed a collection of uh, currently about 13,000 documents, photos, artifacts related to World War II. That will be the core of a future museum we have planned. Um, and the other thing the education department uh, does, besides the answer, we answer a lot of questions, people asking about D-Day students looking for information. Uh, but we are also the keeper of what we call our necrology, which is a, an ongoing research project to identify all of the Allied fallen from June 6, 1944. It's been going on actually since before the memorial opened. Uh, so this is uh, one of the original initiatives. Uh, but for 20 years now, we've been going through military records, obituaries, headstone applications, any kind of records to identify the men who died on D-Day itself, not just for the United States, but for the Allies as well. And currently are up to uh, 4,415 names that are inscribed on bronze plaques at our memorial. And 2,502 of those are American servicemen. Well, could, could you, uh, tell our audience a little bit about the, 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 the scope of this whole D-Day operation? I mean, Operation Overlord, again, as I mentioned in our open, is the largest air, land, and sea operation ever. It was, uh, and, uh, not, not just in the, um, you know, the number of men and ships and plane involved, but in uh, the what was at stake. Uh, this was our only path to victory in World War II in Europe. Uh, if this fails, there really is no other conceivable way we're going to win this war. We might not lose it. It could end up as a negotiated peace with Nazi Germany, but uh, you know, we, no no other option exists. Which is why, actually. Before the United States is even in the war, Britain is already planning the cross-channel invasion and trying to figure out how we can get back across the channel because they also recognize that is going to be the path to victory. So, uh, again, it's, uh, it's overwhelming in numbers. Some 156,000 men landed in France between the beach landings and the parachute drops. 
Uh, they're supported by 11,000 aircraft, some 5,000 ships in the channel. I wonder sometimes how the English Channel was big enough to accommodate all of these ships. Um, and uh, it was still a uh, an operation that very easily could have been a great failure. We think of it as you know one of our great victories in American history, uh, but it very easily could have been one of the great defeats. Eisenhower knew that. He had a message in his pocket on D-Day, a sort of handwritten press release saying, the invasion has failed, I've withdrawn the troops, and I take full responsibility. And, uh, of course, he didn't have to release that press release, but the fact that he had it written out and ready to go, I think, says a lot about his mindset. Uh, he knew that this might not work because of the uh, the challenges that were faced, the opposition of the Germans. Um, and if that were the case, again, there's no other way that we can easily win the war in Europe. No, I'm I'm, I'm reading a, a a little segment here on your on your website that talks about you know the scope of the whole thing. As I said, that many of the young Many of the young men who were took part in the invasion had not been part of the war before Normandy, not even uh, 20 years old. It says they entered the surf carrying over 80 pounds of equipment, and they faced over almost 200 yards of beach before they could reach any sort of natural feature that could offer any type of protection. Yeah, it's all very true. Uh, if if Historians agree on anything about D-Day. It's that the men tended to be overloaded. Uh, they carried with them, you know, not just the necessities, uh, but anything they could conceivably need for the next couple of days because there was no way of knowing when they would be resupplied. And so uh, the average man was carrying 60, 70, 80 pounds, depending on his job. Um, and, um, you know, coming in through water in rough seas, uh, landing, you know, theoretically close enough they can get out and wade through knee-deep water, but very often finding themselves in water over their head. Uh, and, uh, again, it just amazes me how they were able to accomplish this. If you put me in some water with an 80-pound pack, you know, I'm, I'm probably done for. So these, these young men, uh, again, it just amazed me with their uh, determination and, and uh, the valor that they showed. Well, I know there are, there are many just a great and amazing stories of, you know, trying to take the beach um, in, in Normandy and in, in, the, in the various, you know, parts of Normandy. Uh, in fact, you, your, your website's got this really great picture. I finally got an idea of, of what Normandy looked like when you're, when you're looking at, uh, you know, um, Sword Beach, Juno Beach, Gold Beach, Omaha Beach, and Utah Beach. And the idea that there were 12 allied countries that were involved in this um, invasion and that somehow they managed to pull this off. Very true. And I think it's also significant of those 12 nations, many of them were occupied by Nazi Germany. In fact, most of them were Greece, Norway, France, uh, you know, Holland, all Belgium, all these nations are contributing what they have, maybe only a handful of pilots or sailors out in the channel, but they are doing what they can because they knew why they were fighting. They had mm -hmm. brothers and sisters back home under Nazi occupation. Uh, so, yes, the alliance was also a great achievement. Um, one of the uh, great achievements of Eisenhower, I believe, I don't think any other general could have held that alliance together as well as Eisenhower did. 
Um, and and that, that's something we're also very quick to point out because a lot of people have the misunderstanding that D-Day was America. It was when America crossed the channel. Certainly the American Army did, but uh, so did Brit- Britons, Canadians, a uh, few French, and supported by many other nations as well. This was truly the world stepping up to say to Nazi Germany, we're putting a stop to your tyranny. Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed when I think about these, these, you know, young men, you know, jumping off of boats, as you mentioned, into water, in many cases over their heads, and taking a beach that has got to be one of the most defended areas in the history of of defense. <laughs> and oh, I mean, with, with, with uh, machine guns and firing areas and artillery and everything else all aimed at the beach and how we managed to get on that beach i'll never be able to figure that out absolutely and uh, the germans had had spent years preparing their defenses the atlantic wall they called it um and it was considered you know going to be just absolutely formidable and yet we had to get through it and despite all the challenges the impossible tasks that these men were given by the end of June 6, 1944, the Atlantic Wall has been breached on all five beaches, uh, even Omaha, the, the worst of the bunch. And um, very seldom did any unit achieve their objectives for June 6, but they did get through the defenses. And what that means for all the effort that the Germans put into stopping the invasion, they did not. And once you know, we are ashore, we're staying there. Uh, and we're going to build up our forces and keep pushing through France on into Germany and on to the end of the war in Europe. took a lot longer than they thought. The uh, hedgerow country in Normandy did not lend itself well to operation, uh, offensive operations. So I say it's going to be quite a bit longer than they hoped before the uh, breakout happens. But uh, eventually that happens as well. Uh, we're talking here with uh, with John Long with the National D Day Memorial. Um, John, what do you know about the people in France? I mean, I was I was reading an article this morning. I can't remember which paper it was in. Uh, you know, because of the travel restrictions and so forth, there was only one actually one uh, veteran there from American veteran who has lived in France for the last thirty years or so. But how do, how did you the people in France still regard what happened there on D Day? It's very interesting. Uh, I've been fortunate uh, to go to Normandy twice with my wife and uh, uh, school groups. And um, you know, the French have this reputation of being sort of snooty and standoffish. And, yeah, you might meet some of those kind of people in Paris. But when you get to Normandy, they have not forgotten either. They love Americans, and especially they love veterans. And it is true, you know, COVID has changed so much in the last couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, and the veterans, of course, are in their mid-90s, much harder to travel than it would have been 20 years ago. But uh, the ones who have been able to visit, um, again, they're just treated as absolute heroes by the French people. Uh, French, uh, for instance, French uh, communities took on the decoration of individual servicemen's graves in Normandy. And so if you were in the cemetery today, you would go by and you would see graves decorated with flowers, maybe with photographs, maybe with letters of thanks. Um, and this has been done by French civilians. 
sometimes for two or three generations now, they passed down, you know, this is our American, and we are going to honor him every June 6th. And uh, it's a tradition that still goes on, very touching. I would think so. That was, that was part of the, the story this morning, in, in that, they're, you know, that as you mentioned, that they've, they've adopted these, uh, you know, killed uh, American soldiers who happen to be buried in French soil or in Belgian soil or, you know, and, and so forth, the, the, the cemeteries over there. And that I find that just so powerful that, that we did, we did the right thing. Every, you know, everybody, you know, can dis- decide whether or not, but we did the right thing and we let them, you know, we, we freed them from the tyranny of, of Nazi Germany. We, you know, attempted to you know rebuild them after the war so i mean that that i think that was america's finest hour oh i would agree certainly uh this was uh you know what studs turkle called the good war uh where you know, you're not going to find many people on the other side uh you would not have found many people in 1944 opposed to you know what we were doing uh they could quibble over you know, priorities or, you know, tactics or, you know, overall global strategy. But you know, there was a general you know, a, a unanimous opinion that we are fighting against tyranny, fighting against people who need to be stopped. And um, let's say just that, that um, unanimous opinion of the U.S. is another glorious moment in history. No, I, I think so too. And I'm going to, I might be putting you on a spot a little bit. We, we talk about 150,000 servicemen from all over, um, you know, the allied world took part in the invasion. I was wondering if you could, if you could think of one particular soldier that you would like to talk about. Um, uh, do you have time for two? Uh, sure. This, this year, uh, on Memorial Day, uh, we added two names to our wall. As I say, our necrology project continues through the years. We're still going through records. A lot of contradictions that have to be sorted out. Um, and so this year, uh, last Monday, we added the name Clarence Toll, T-O-L-L-E, to our wall. He's a paratrooper from the 82nd Airborne uh, captain in charge of a company. He landed on D-Day. Um, but, of course, if you know anything about the parachute drops, uh, he, yeah. he was, he had no idea where any of the rest of his men were. And so he cobbled together this unit and went to carry out his objective, which was to, uh, seize the little village of Amfreville in France, uh, because it was a, you know, crucial crossroads. And so, uh, they had to seize that a crossing of the, of the river there. And, um, he was hit by German machine gun fire while, you know, trying to lead his men against a, uh, a house that was being used for by the Germans for defense. And uh, in the confusion of war, his death date was incorrectly listed. It's only been in the, uh, you know, last year, really, that we were able to sort out based on oral histories, based on his own Silver Star citation, uh, that he did indeed die on D-Day. Uh, the other name we added is a sailor, an ensign by the name of Frederick Nye Moses, uh, went by his middle name, Nye, and Nye Moses was in command of an LCT, landing craft tank, on D-Day, um, and the landing craft tanks 
in the early hours of the invasion were the biggest naval naval vessels uh, that you know had approached the beach up to that point, and so that made them obviously a big target for German artillery. And while he was uh, you know instructing his men to charge to the beach, they had a artillery unit with big guns to unload. Uh, Nye Moses was also hit by enemy fire. Uh, his leg was pretty much severed, and he uh, bled out and died soon afterwards. But even in his last moments, he was giving instructions to his men uh, to continue the charge and leaving behind you know, well wishes to his family, asking his sailors to contact his family and, and uh, you know, bring them comfort as well. And once again, Nye Moses, the death date was simply confused. Uh, so we've been able to sort that out, and he is another name that's just been added to our wall. So the total, that brings us up to the total of 2,502 American names uh, on our wall that we know died on D-Day. And we know there are also others, um, because the the records are not, you know, perfect, and they couldn't be. I always remind right. people the goal was to win a world war, not to keep future historians happy. Um, and uh, so we, we continue to research that maybe other things we get to add. Uh, and uh, we're we're determined to you know honor each man who died. Well, I, did, I thank you very much, John. I was just thinking when you were talking about the story of the landing ship tank. My my dad was on one of those in the Pacific, and uh, I, I learned from his shipmates that they call them long slow targets. Yes, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> so I'm glad that you know, and I, you're probably going to continue to find people that died on the actual day. You know. For the next hundred years, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, thank you very much for being on Veterans Radio. I encourage people to go to your website. It is dday.org. No Correct. space, just dday.org. There's so much valuable information on there. Um, and a uh, video of our commemoration today, as well as one marking our 20th anniversary. So it's just been uploaded today as well. The other thing I found on there, this is just a quick aside, is you have a radio, uh, program uh that that's going on during d-day it's it's just fascinating uh yes i encourage uh, people to go and listen donated to this a couple years ago um some of the original record graph recordings of d-day that's a forgotten medium is basically the ancestor the grandfather maybe of the cassette tapes that i'm old enough to remember i don't know if you are um uh, <laughs> and uh yes we we have i'm those. back to real and real so <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, thank you very much, John. And I hope that we can uh, talk to you in the future. Let us know if you have any ever, you know, come up with more information. Um, John Long, Director of Education for the National D-Day Memorial. Thank you for being on Veterans Radio. Thank you, Dale. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Myra Miller. And she's going to have some more stories about some of the young men who uh, participated in the D-Day invasion of Europe. You're listening to Veterans Radio. We'll be right back. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Walter Ellers and his brother were in the first wave to hit Omaha Beach on D-Day. Details after this. Staff Sergeant Eller's brother was several hundred yards away on the beach, and they didn't see each other. Eller's unit ran into a decimated unit of Bangalore torpedo men and provided cover for them as they used their explosives to blow a hole in the German fortifications. 
This allowed an American breakup. On June 9th, Ehlers' platoon came under heavy fire. He climbed a hedgerow and called his men to follow. He spotted a German patrol and killed four of the enemy. Ordering his men to fix bayonets and firing from his hip, he destroyed a machine gun nest. He then attacked a second machine gun, killing three more. The platoon moved out the next morning and came under intense fire from both sides. The commander ordered a withdrawal. Ehlers realized that someone had to provide cover. He motioned his automatic rifleman to follow him, scrambled to the top of a mound of earth that provided a vantage point. They began firing on the Germans, drawing fire away from the rest of the platoon. Ehlers was hit in the back, but was able to kill the sniper that shot him. When his rifleman was wounded, Ehlers dragged him to safety. Ehlers was treated at a field station and insisted on returning to action. Unable to strap on a backpack, he strapped on two bandoliers of ammunition, picked up a rifle, and went to find his men. A month later, he was informed that his brother was killed on Omaha Beach. Ehlers was presented the Medal of Honor by Lieutenant General John Lee on December 19, 1944. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. And we are back here on Veterans Radio, and it is D-Day 2021, 77th anniversary of the D-Day invasion of, of Europe. Uh, joining me on the line right now is a, another storyteller, and this, her name is Myra Miller. And Myra Miller is a PhD, and she is one of the co-founders of FootstepsResearchers.com, uh, really kind of specializing in the history of the 83rd Infantry Division, uh, which her father participated with. So I want to welcome her. Myra, welcome to Veterans Radio. I'm I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on the program. Thank you. All right. So we're talking about D-Day, and your dad was involved in D-Day. He was he was not on D-Day, but let me. Uh, I have stories of uh, men who were on D-Day. My dad was a replacement with the 83rd. He showed up on July 21st in Saint Denis, France. Uh, to be a replacement soldier for Company K, the 331st Infantry Regiment. But where I'm going with this is uh, because of uh, he didn't talk about it, and I'm the youngest of five uh, children, and I'm a girl, I did not know anything that he did in World War II until about six or seven years ago. I asked a few questions and realized that we didn't have all the answers. And uh, I also live in St. Louis, and that's the home of the National Archives. And so... Uh, my brothers and sisters and I decided that we wanted to tell the story of our father, but he didn't have, he, he wasn't anybody special. He carried a gun across Europe and he did what he was supposed to do, but we found that there were thousands of people, just ordinary men and women who helped win World War II. And what we did is we collaborated together and um, we compiled many stories of ordinary men and women. And we ended up with two volumes of soldiers' stories, a collection of World War II memoirs. And uh, both of those volumes are out now. And I was going to read some stories from our volume two. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I want, before you start reading those things, I wanted to talk about a couple of the other things that you are involved with, with the footsteps researchers is that you yeah. will also help veterans or the veterans families gather all the information and help them put together their own book. Uh, yes. What we do is, uh, we reconstruct histories of, uh, soldiers. I specialize in World War II of all, uh, of all Navy, Army, Marines, uh, all that my specialty, like you said, is the 83rd. But I have a team of about 18 people on my team of footsteps researchers, and I have an expert in about every area and every geographical location. And I'm the one that does the, I have a team of archival researchers. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, uh, the research room has been closed for a year and a half, and we're really trying to get back in uh, as soon as possible. Well, let's let's hear a couple of your stories, and I want to come back to this because there's some other things that you're involved in that I think our audience would really find very interesting. Right. I I, I have a lot of (laughs) – I have so many things I can share with you today. Um, But I do want to honor the men who were there. Uh, This is D-Day, June 6th. In 1944, 77 years ago, Henry Kuntz, he was in the Army. But this is a funny story. He signed up as a 15-year-old because his cousin helped him uh, falsify the notary that went on his, because he knew his parents wouldn't consent, and he was 15 years old, and he ended up in a unit that happened to land on D-Day on June 6th. And just a little paragraph here, Henry, on June 6th, at 6.30 in the morning, he hit Omaha Beach. On the beach, a sergeant realizing his young age grabbed him and ripped off his helmet and the red cross from his arm. And he told Henry that if he was needed, he would be called of the 110 men that were in Henry's unit that morning. Only seven of them survived that day as they were under constant fire. And in Henry's words, when the day began, he was a 15 year old boy. And that night he was a a 15 year old man. Yeah. That's, that's, I can't imagine doing that at 15. Could you imagine? He was 15, no. uh, but his sergeant realized uh, the situation and protected him. And uh, Henry died October 17th, 2020 in Springfield, Missouri. Oh, my. I bet, I bet he had many more stories. Oh, yes, I'm sure he did. Um, and, and then the second one is Richard Fazio. He's still alive today. His is, uh, I've met Richard um, uh, he was in the Navy, and he was um, an, a coxswain on Higgins' boat on June 6th of 1944 off of the USS Enrico. And uh, just a little point about him is that uh, in the book it says he was supposed to find a certain church tower in the town near Omaha Beach and use it as a landmark to bring his boatload of troops ashore. Luckily, the training prepared him perfectly, and he spotted the church tower on fire after it had apparently been hit in the bombardment leading up to the beach attack. And so the scene of the boat crews encountered as they neared their target zone was uh, horrendous. Uh, Fazio remembers bullets from the enemy gun smacking in the water against the steel sides of the boat. And he was ordered, just so you uh, everyone knows, that he could not return to the boat with anyone on it. It was an order. Whether they were wounded, dead, or alive, he could not come back with anyone. And 
So the one young soldier hesitated for a moment, and, uh, and, and because he couldn't go back, Fazio had to wave him off to meet his fate with the other troops in his unit. And every single person that went off of Fazio's boat that day perished. He does not know what happened to the one young soldier that he had to tell to get off the boat. I was thinking when you mentioned that, that Higgins boat, these are the boats that went up onto the beach and the, and the front went down, right? Exactly, yes. And and this is a picture, you know, that you see. In all, every time everybody talks about D-Day, that is one of the pictures that they always show. Yes, the, the, and Richard the, was, was 18 years old and it was the, the coxswain of that boat. And he was injured in that attack. And um, when he raised his arm to uh, tell the soldier to get off, the, the one that froze, he got wounded in the sh- he got hit in the shoulder and had to still go back and go back to his uh, ship. I have met Richard and every time he tells his story, he chokes up. He can't he can't finish the story. Yeah, I I, 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 can, I can relate to that in talking to so many World War II veterans that they at this point in their lives they they can see so clearly what happened on whatever day it was that you know that they were in combat and you know, lost their friends and and, and so forth, mm-hmm. and they all react that same way. I, I haven't seen anybody yes. that just that can, you know, just blurt right through it. Yes, and uh, and the one final uh, person I have uh, listed here for you. You were talking about the 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 one living uh, uh, veteran that is lives in Normandy. His name's Charles Shea. Yes. I happen to have his story in my book. He's the one that you guys were talking about before I came on. Uh, he is the one U.S. veteran today on at Normandy uh, at the celebrations and at the festivals today that nobody could really attend. So he is the lone U.S. representative today. And um, he was a medic with the uh, 1st Infantry Division, 16th Infantry Regiment, Company F. And uh, uh, one of my team members, Flo Plana, who is a tour guide, with the World War II Veterans Memories uh, tour program over in France, he interviewed Charles. And that's one of the most important things a person can do is interview on video or on audio or in print to get their stories because pretty soon they're going to be forgotten. And uh, in his story, in his video, he tells about landing and that he was trying with his limited access and medical equipment, um, trying to save the wounded people, and he, the tide was rising. And he noticed that some of the wounded people in, who were on the beach were now getting swept into the water because of the tide rising. And so he has no uh, idea how many people he saved, but he did earn a silver, silver star for his efforts that morning as he ran one after another and pulled those wounded men out of the water up onto the beach so that they could be taken care of by other medics. And uh-huh. his... His uh, one thing that he gets choked up about is a fellow medic. He ran across him on the beach, saw that he had a, stim- a stomach wound. His name was Edward Morosevich, and uh, he knew he wasn't going to make it. Uh, but he, you know, usually medics don't get wounded, but this one was. And he is buried in uh, Colville sur Mer, uh, in the American cemetery there. And Charles every year goes and, uh, uh, put flowers on Edward's grave because he was a fellow medic with him and he couldn't save him that day and he regrets that terribly. 
the guilt never goes away. No. It, never, it can never go away. Um, we, we're talking with, with Myra Miller here with, with Footsteps Researchers, um, who is kind of, it kind of sounds like you have a really kind of a neat dream job. I do. <laughs> I do when it's not. I mean, COVID. it's kind of like you luck. I don't know if you lucked into it or it just it just you know was was thrust upon you. But, no, I think uh, I was destined to do this. It started out uh, trying to figure out what happened to my father and realized I was in a situation uh, where I could help others. And pretty soon, I'm leading tours to Europe. Uh, we have two volumes of books with over 300 stories. And I do research uh, for people around the world. I've already helped three people today over the uh, email today, helping them with uh, information on research. Well, so if, if if I wanted you to help me find out the story of my dad, what would how would I do that? Well, you said he was in the Navy. He was in the Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard. taken over by the Navy, and he ended up on Iwo Jima. Okay. Well, let me tell you something. Most people say... Well, the fire of 1973 in St. Louis, um, all the personal records were lost. That is not true. They have been reconstructed since then. Only 80% of the Army records, um, well, 20% survived, and some of them in not great condition, but you can still, they do preservation. Mm -hmm. There's reconstruction of documents. And uh, several of us uh, researchers, we know alternative records to go to to put together this story to figure out. But the most important thing about Navy and the Marines is they were not in St. Louis in 1973. So their records were not lost, and they are in St. Louis when the research rooms are open and we can get in to get them. So I could definitely get your father's personnel records. Ah, uh, I might have to be in touch with you. Uh, we've only got an, another minute to go, uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately, Myra. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to tell our audience about what you do or how you can help them out? Well, um, right now our situation is that we cannot get into the research room, and uh, I think that's, uh, that's uh, very frustrating and totally ridiculous at this point when you can go to the store and you can go do other things, but you can't mm -hmm. go to a research room and look at some files. So uh, I'm with a group that's fighting that um, situation right now, but as soon as we can get back in, we can get back uh, going that direction, but in the meantime... My team segued and pivoted to a different thing, and now we're working on Footsteps Battlefield Tours. And in September, October, November, we have tours set to take people over uh, to if they want to follow battlefield uh, footsteps of uh, World War II. So we do a lot of things in the meantime, um, but footstepsresearchers.com is the, the website that you can find the books, you can find the tours, you can find research and you can get a hold of me that way. And we're just hoping that any day that we can get back in that research room and help people find uh, the footsteps of their loved one. All right. Thank you very much, Myra. I appreciate you very much for being on the program. I'm sure we can put together something again in the future, and I will be calling you uh, with a story. <laughs> okay. Thank right? you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much being on our program all right we got to take another real quick break and when we come back we're going to be talking about uh, the nvbdc and we have a, a recorded uh interview that we did with, with one of their officers uh you're listening to veterans radio we'll be right back military veterans touch everyone's life i'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran a close friend relative 
Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Okay, we're back here on Veterans Radio, and we've got an interview uh, that my partner Jim Falcone did with uh, Daryl Brown. And Daryl Brown is the senior vice president of the uh, NVBDC. And so we're going to play that for you. And when we're finished with that, we'll come back uh, toward the end of the program. Uh, and then, so, Derek, if we're ready, let's go. Welcome. I'm Jim Fossone, and this is a Veterans Radio Spotlight on National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. Veterans Radio America, a nonprofit, has a partnership with NVBDC. The National Veterans Business Development Council is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses of all sizes. It's a 501c3 nonprofit that was established in 2013. It addresses the growing need to identify and certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses in the commercial or corporate marketplace. NVBDC administers a rigorous certification process designed to withstand the scrutiny of governmental and corporate entities seeking to utilize certified veteran-owned businesses. And we want to welcome to Veterans Radio, Daryl Brown. Daryl is the Senior Vice President of Operations for NVBDC. Daryl, welcome to Veterans Radio. Well, thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having us on. Well, we uh, love putting a spotlight on the work that you folks are doing and the businesses that are involved in this certification process. Um, Daryl, as the Senior Vice President of Operations, why don't you tell us what's new at NVBDC? <laughs> well, there's always new stuff going on. Uh, our main focus is finding and certifying veteran-owned companies, like you mentioned. That is our primary focus because we feel it's important in the supplier diversity world to include veteran-owned companies, specifically service-disabled veteran-owned companies, to have the opportunity to be a part of the supplier diversity program of major corporations, uh, any size corporation, we don't care if they're, if they're buying or selling products and services throughout the company, we want to have them consider and understand the value that veteran-owned companies can bring to their their programs. Well, and there's many uh, veteran-owned uh, businesses out there, but they don't all go through the certification process, which is critical when a corporation is kind of looking at, hey, we want to give back to the veteran community, but we, we want to make sure we're given to true veteran companies. And that's what the assurance that you guys, sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval that you guys give, isn't it? Well, thank you. We appreciate that. We we consider that we are the gold standard for certifying that veteran-owned companies like uh, minorities and women-owned businesses and the NGLC Seek certification program that when they consider certifying veteran-owned, women-owned, uh, gay and lesbian uh, chamber of commerce members, we, we want corp- national corporations and reason the corporations understand that we do the same process that they do to certify that it is a veteran-owned company 
that the veteran owns and operates, the veteran controls and has command of the operation. And your corporate partners at NVBDC are some of the uh, nation's largest companies, uh, but it's also, you know, not everybody has to be a, a, a Fortune 50 company. Give us some examples of companies that utilize the NVBDC uh, corporate uh, certification. Well, we just certified, well, we just became a corporate member of a company called Swinerton out of the South Bay Area in California. They've been in business for 150-some years in California, back dating back to the 1870s, I think it is. So they're a veteran-owned company, and they do their due diligence to find and contract with veteran-owned companies. We've been working with them for about two or three years now to convince them that we'd be a valuable partner with them in their search and certification of veteran-owned companies. So they eventually just came on board. Now, they're, they're a good-sized company. They're not a Fortune 50 company or even a Fortune 500 company, but they're very strong. They're very well-known in the Bay Area, and they are anxious and just eager to work with us to identify veteran-owned businesses, not only in California but throughout the country that can provide products and services to them. Well, and that's one of the things that not only once you certify a company, NVBDC really has um, is sort of a clearinghouse of for opportunities, isn't it? Absolutely, we get information all the time. We get requests all the time from companies wanting to uh, particularly contract with veteran-owned companies. A few years ago, AT and T sent out a request for landscapers. Now, who would have ever thought that AT&T needed landscapers? Right, right. But they have buildings around the country, and somebody needs to take care of the grass and the flowers and the shrubs. So they wanted us to look for anyone we had certified or is a veteran-owned company that would do landscaping for their their, comp- their buildings. Well, well, I think we found one or two that actually contract with AT&T. For, but, again, that's one of those things that you never know is going to come out of the, of the emails you get. Well, and I think that's important for folks to understand that you go through this certification process, and like most business and most things in life, it's all about networking, isn't it? And you guys are strong in networking both those corporations who want to find a veteran-owned business with veteran-owned businesses, aren't you? Exactly, and that's the value of us getting those requests before anyone else sees them. We used to get one or two days lead time for the veteran-owned companies to consider applying for that that purchase order. So that's – and that network we have extends around the country. We have partners around the country that are not companies, but we work with the small business development centers. We work with the veteran business opportunity centers. We work with a lot of veteran service organizations and military service organizations through our uh, veteran and military task force to make those connections so that when opportunities come up, our certified companies get first look at them. Well, as we put this spotlight on the value of NVBDC.org, can you give us an example maybe of a success story that uh, you've been involved in, in in making that connection or networking between a company that's looking for a veteran organization and a veteran-owned business? Okay. A couple of years ago, uh, the one I remember specifically is that I was doing a site assessment for a company that worked for a well-known bank. I won't tell you the company name or the bank, but they told this man, this veteran, Vietnam-era veteran, that to continue doing business with them, he had to become NVBD certified. 
So he, we finally got in touch with him, got his certification going. I did the site assessment. He told me during the site assessment he had a $2 million contract sitting out there with the bank waiting for our certification. So he actually came to us first. It wasn't us going to them. He came to us first and said, I need to get certified by you so I can get this $2 million contract. So that was one of those things that, again, you never know what's going to happen. You never know how it's going to happen. You never know where it's going to happen. But fortunately, we did the certification real fast and got that managed $2 million contract. Well, those are the sort of stories that folks can really relate to and say, now I understand why I might go through this process. Hey, we're talking yeah. to Daryl Brown, who is the Senior Vice President of Operations for NVBDC. Daryl, if people want uh, more information about the organization or the certification process, where would you direct them? I would direct them to our website, nvbdc.org, or call our, our uh, toll-free number, 888-CERTIFIED. That's where you can get all the basic information real fast. And then someone will contact you. If you go on the website and put in the request for contact and information, we have a person that directly calls you, contacts you, whichever way you want to be contacted. If you call the 888 number, then we have a person dedicated to respond to those requests on the 888 number. So that's the quickest and easiest way. Well, that's great uh, information, and that's why we've got you in the spotlight we're back here on Veterans Radio. It's Jim Falzone talking with uh, Daryl Brown, Senior Vice President of the uh, National Veterans Business Development Council. I just wanted to talk about the upcoming program next week, which I, th- I was looking at it kind of cool. Uh, Jim Falzone uh, did an interview with two retired Army people, uh, and one Army, one Marine. Got to get that correct. Uh, the, the Marine is the author of a book called Craig and Fred, and this is a dog book, and it's about a stray dog in uh, Afghanistan. So this is going to be one of those dog stories, and I know that our listeners, you all love, really like these the dog stories. Um, without giving the whole thing away, is that, but Craig found this dog in Afghanistan and brought him home with him. And as a result of uh, his experiences with Fred, the dog, he has become more involved with other veterans, uh needing service dogs and so forth. And he went and gave a talk up in, at, a, at a prison in Maine with the, uh, let's see, where is that? Uh, incarcerated uh, uh, veterans at the Marine Department of Corrections. And they had started up a program of training service dogs. So I encourage you to tune in next week and make sure that you, uh, I think this, this story is really interesting. I'm, I'm anxious to hear more and more about it uh, as uh, Craig and Fred, you know, did their transition of coming home. Can you imagine the story of just trying to get the dog out of Afghanistan? Because this was not an American service dog. This was a stray. And uh, Craig was able to get the dog out. But anyway, so I encourage you to tune in next week. I think you'll find the story is very interesting. Um, also, I wanted to remind everybody that the benefits program will be coming up on the last Sunday of this month. And so if you have any questions about VA benefits, uh, this is the time to start sending them in to us. We've got three experts that come on to our program on the last Sunday of each month to answer your questions about what you are entitled to for during your time in service. If you were injured or if you picked up a disease as a result of exposures to either burn pits or Agent Orange, this is your opportunity to get this information uh, from experts. And we will help you 
get through that. Uh, one of our sponsors, Legal Help for Veterans, is represented there. We have a local service officer who will answer your questions and a rep- representative from the VA. So do that. The last thing I want to remind you of is that on that program, we give away the flight jacket from U.S. Wings. But you can't win the jacket if you don't register to win. So you need to go to veteransradio.net and click on the picture of the jacket. And it will ask some questions about, you know, where you are, when you served, and so forth. And you'll be put in the pool, and you can win that jacket. So we encourage you to do that. Take a second today to think about the families and those men that participated in D-Day 77 years ago. Without them doing that, none of us would be here. So until next week, this is Dale Thromery for Veterans Radio. You are dismissed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.